Matthew 7, 21 through 23 on page 812. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. If Jeff could come forward, we'll pray for him. God, we thank you so much for Jeff, for his preparation. We thank you for his family, his family that loves you, Jesus, so much and wants to share you with us in this room and with us, um, all the connections we have in this city. Thank you for the way they persevere through the highs and the lows. Thank you for Jeff and his preparation. God, I pray that he has great joy in sharing with us what you have taught him this week. Help our hearts be open for what we need to learn. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, please bear with me this morning. My family, they're just so generous, you know. They, they share so freely, and they shared some germs uh, this week, so I picked up a cold. Um, but it's good to be here this morning. Um, I want to begin this morning talking about warning signs, all right? My best friend from college is an engineer with MoDOT, Missouri Department of Transportation. And MoDOT's main goal is roadway safety across the state. And they use warning signs to help alert drivers to upcoming dangers on the road ahead. They launched the BUPD campaign several years ago as a way to help educate and warn against the dangers of distracted driving. I'm sure you've seen the road signs or the billboards or even commercials on TV about BUPD, right? Buckle up, phone down. The message is pretty simple. Because we care about you, because we care about the other motorists on the road, buckle up and put your phone down, right? Not having your seatbelt on and being distracted while driving is dangerous and it can be deadly. Buckle up, phone down, your life is at stake. The National Weather Service has a catchy warning sign you've probably also seen, um, maybe more in the summers uh, when there's a lot of rain and thunderstorms, and it's turn around, don't drown. Over half of flood-related drownings are a result of a vehicle being driven into hazardous water. So when roads are flooded, when all you can see is water, just turn around, don't drown. Your life is at stake. Warning signs are there to, to keep us safe, to keep us from unnecessary harm. And if our passage this morning had a warning sign, had its own warning sign, it might read, Know and obey, don't delay. This is one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. This is the kind of passage that should send chills down your spine and bring you to your knees because if this is true, if what Jesus says is true here in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, there are many people, many, gathered in churches all across the world today who can say the right things about God, many who can point to past spiritual feats, and yet in the end will hear these crushing words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. There may be some here right now among the many Jesus addresses, and so I plead with you this morning, don't rush past this. 
Don't assume this passage isn't speaking to you. Don't dismiss the warning here in this passage and just assume that you're fine. Your very life is at stake. The main point for our sermon this morning is Jesus will be known and obeyed or not known at all. Jesus will be known and obeyed or not known at all. Before we get into our passage, I want to kind of set the stage for where we are in Matthew's gospel. Here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is wrapping up the longest recorded section of his teaching in the gospels. It's what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the main themes in Matthew's gospel is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of used interchangeably there. That's why our series is called Our King, His Kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is defining for us a new kingdom ethic. And when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's not so much talking about a place or a destination. He's talking about his active reign in the world. That's why he can say in Matthew 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. It's, it's here. It's in our midst because his good rule and reign is being experienced by those who have turned from their slavery to sin and Satan to trust and follow him. They are the citizens of his kingdom. It's a kingdom that exists now in part where he's ruling in our hearts, but it will be fully known when Jesus returns. That's in chapter 7, verse 22, when it says, on that day, that's the day Jesus is referring to, the day that he comes back. R.T. France describes the kingdom like this. To enter the kingdom of heaven does not mean to go to a place called heaven, though eternal life of, the eternal life of heaven will be its expected outcome, but to come under God's rule, to become one of those who recognize his kingship and live by its standards, to be God's true people. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount describing what life looks like in his kingdom. He describes the, the blessed lives of the citizens of his kingdom, and it sounds a little upside down, you know. It's the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted and reviled. Those are the blessed ones. And then he moves on to address how he relates to the law and the prophets. He, he teaches on anger and lust, on divorce and oaths and retaliation, on giving and prayer and fasting about trusting him and not being anxious, about judging others, about how we relate to our Father in heaven and how we're to treat others. And in all of this teaching, Jesus isn't laying out a new list of requirements, a new list of qualifications for entrance to his kingdom. He's saying, this is what your life will look like if you are part of my kingdom. This is what your life will look like when the life of the king enters in and transforms your heart. It's not about earning. It's about receiving the life of the king. So Jesus wraps up the main part of his teaching, and then he concludes his sermon with some closing remarks, and that's kind of this section in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 26, about who truly is in the kingdom of God and who will be shown on the last day to be looking outside, looking on the outside, looking in. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he encourages hearers to Enter by the narrow gate that leads to life. In Matthew 7, 15, he warns of false prophets who come in from the outside to get people to stray from the truth. That was last week's passage. And now we come to our passage for today. 
And in it, Jesus describes people who are operating within the community of faith who, who aren't knowingly trying to deceive uh, or lead others astray, but are self-deceived into thinking that they're truly citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And he gives two contrasts to illustrate this, one in verse 21 and the other in verses 22 and 23. And, and though the two contrasts are really just kind of two different angles on the same issue, I think it's helpful uh, to consider each of them separately so that we see what we can learn from both. So first contrast, saying versus doing. Saying versus doing. Look with me again at Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel the word Lord is used to address Jesus. In that day, in, its original, in the original language, the, the word, it didn't carry with it, the word Lord, it didn't carry with it any theological, theological significance. To be sure, it was a, a respectful address. It was used to refer to someone of, of a higher social status, like an employer or a governing leader. It was almost like saying, sir. So here's the question. Are these people in verse 21 merely addressing Jesus in a respectful way? I mean, I could understand Jesus' pronouncement of judgment here if they're basically just saying, sir, sir, you know? Or is there more to what they're saying here when they say, Lord, Lord? Well, I think there is more to it than merely addressing Jesus as sir, and I think there are a few reasons for that. First, the context. Notice in verse 21, Jesus addresses the Father as my Father in heaven. He's hinting here at his divine sonship. And in verse 23, we learn something really powerful about Jesus, that he is claiming he is the one with authority to pronounce final judgment on humanity. This isn't just some good teacher or prophet. Jesus is the divine judge. And in verse 22, the, these people who are, are self-deceived are doing all of these things in his name. This implies they recognize, you know, this was more than just a man from the obscure region of Nazareth. They're, they're doing things in his name. They want to kind of get in on the power of his name. So first, the context seems to point to Lord, Lord, being more than a courteous way to address Jesus. Second, the, just the way that the address is repeated. You know, Lord, Lord. Um, it speaks to an earnest appeal rather than just a respectful greeting. And third, by the time Matthew writes his gospel account, the title Lord had developed far greater significance. After his death and resurrection, when Jesus' followers referred to him as Lord, it was a divine title. The Lord was the victorious king over sin and grave. The people who were gathered on that day to hear Jesus deliver his sermon on the mount, they may not have had all that in mind, but after his death and resurrection, they definitely did. So their address of Jesus says, Lord, Lord is right. It's true, but Jesus says it's not enough to say true things about him. It's not enough to address him with the right title. Now, before we take this too far, of course, the things that we say are important, right? What we declare about God is important. Paul makes it clear that our confession is a vital part of our salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved.
But there has to be more to a person's faith than mere words. Jesus is saying the true citizens of his kingdom, they don't only affirm truths about him with their minds and with their mouths, they affirm it with their lives in obedience. We aren't given a detailed glimpse into the lives of the people Jesus mentions in verse 21, those who say to him, Lord, Lord, but by his rebuke of them, Jesus implies there was, there was a disconnect between the words on their lips and the way that they lived the rest of their lives. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Look, look with me at Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A true disciple, a true citizen of Jesus' kingdom will desire God's will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. They will desire God's will be done in their lives like it is in heaven. As important as words are, words aren't enough. They're not all that matters. And so, a searching question for you. Are you merely saying the right things about God Or is your life marked by an increasing obedience to the Father's will in all things? Are you merely saying the right things about God in song and as we recite the creeds, in in conversations with others, or are are you just saying the right things? Or is your life marked by an increasingly humble, honest obedience to the Father's will in all of life? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't rush past this. Don't assume this isn't written for you. Listen to D.A. Carson on this passage. What then is the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? It is not loud profession, nor spectacular spiritual triumphs, nor protestations of great spiritual experience. Rather, his chief characteristic is obedience. The Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, debated. It is done. It's not theologically analyzed nor congratulated for its high ethical tones. It is done. Does this describe you, brother or sister? Jesus says in verse 21, see it on the screen here, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven is the one who will enter his kingdom. And I think a logical question as we read that is, what is the will of the Father that Jesus is referring to here? I mean, it seems like that's important, right? Be helpful to know. Well, I think we could point to a lot of verses in Scripture that speak to the will of God, but given this verse is situated in the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount, surely Jesus is pointing back to his teachings from Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and the beginning parts of chapter 7, right? Surely the Father's will is that we embody the kingdom ethic that Jesus has just outlined. So how do we know the Father's will? How do you so closely align yourself with the heart of Jesus that your natural inclinations are what he would do if he were living your life? This is like application time here, okay? We don't have to wait till the end. Um, Immerse yourself in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospels, in the rest of Scripture. 
spend so much time reading it and meditating on it and soaking in it that it becomes the lens through which you see your life, that it becomes the framework for how you relate to God and how you relate to others in the world, that it works its way to the very core of who you are. That's how the life and the heart of Jesus work their way through your head and your heart and out through your hands and your feet and practical obedience. Friend, as you survey your life this morning, are you merely saying the right things about Jesus or are you doing the will of God? Jesus will be known and obeyed or he won't be known at all. If you're here this morning and you know the right things to say about God, but you also know your heart hasn't really been changed to want to obey him, the king invites you to become a true citizen of the kingdom even now. Turn from your mere mental assent to true things about Jesus. Trust him with your life. Embrace the forgiveness and new life that he offers through his death and resurrection. So that's the first contrast, saying versus doing. Now let's move on to the second contrast. Performing versus knowing. Performing versus knowing. Look again with me at verses 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is pretty wild, right? I mean, these people are doing some pretty spectacular things in Jesus' name, and yet somehow these people don't make the cut in his kingdom. What is going on here? If you're, if you're like me, you wonder, like, how is it even possible to prophesy or to cast out demons or to do other mighty works in Jesus' name without actually knowing him? Well, this isn't a primary point in this passage, but what's assumed here is just like there's a material world that we can see and hear and touch, there's also a spiritual world, a spiritual dimension to life that maybe we don't as readily see or appreciate. The religious leaders in Jesus' day had a big enough view of the spiritual world that they didn't think it strange for someone who wasn't doing it for or with God to be able to cast out demons. Later in his gospel, Matthew recounts a story of a man being brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed and blind and mute. And Jesus heals him and all the people, they marvel, they're amazed. But listen how the religious leaders responded in Matthew 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Pharisees credited Jesus' power to cast out demons to the prince of demons, which is pretty bold, pretty bold move on their part. All that to say, like, let's not get too hung up this morning or as you kind of look at this passage on how it's possible that these people Jesus refers to in verse 22 could do what they did apart from actually knowing him. What we do need to consider is how could they do all these spectacular things in Jesus' name but still be considered workers of lawlessness, finding themselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. That's the really terrifying reality here in this passage. Is it possible that many will get to the end of their lives and on that day say something like, 
Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not lead a small group or a missional community in your name? Did we not serve our city together with Fort Columbia? Did we not come to worship gatherings? Did we not sing and play from the stage? Did we not serve in the kids' ministry? Only to hear Jesus declare to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Is that possible? I think so, according to this passage. How? How can an act or acts that, that have a good result, like being freed from demon possession, healed from disease, served and blessed by another, how can those kinds of things be considered evil? It's the difference between performing and knowing. Friend, are you performing or do you truly know the Lord? There are multiple examples in Scripture of religious performance done apart from saving faith that are considered evil. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, he records, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of their virtuous acts were like filthy rags before the Lord. Paul in his letter to the church in Rome, he writes in, at the end of Romans 14, verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So even good things, when they don't come from a heart trusting in Christ, are considered sin. It's the difference between performing and knowing. Do you know, do you know what veneer is? Uh, you know, I'm I'm a woodworker, so we do a lot with plywood. Veneer is that really thin layer of wood that makes up the top layer of a piece of plywood. It's the layer that's visible on the outside. Veneer is the thin, pretty wood that covers up the not-so-pretty wood in the middle. The spectacular spiritual acts listed in verse 22 are like veneer that covers up what's really on the inside of these people a heart that doesn't really love God, a heart that's never been changed by the grace that comes along with being known by Jesus. So what does it mean to be known by Jesus? Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That word knew or know there, it speaks of a covenant relationship. In other places in Scripture, the word is used to describe a man knowing his wife in such a way that a baby is produced. It's obviously not the context of its use here, but still it speaks to a level of intimate knowledge. Being known isn't, isn't just being aware of true things about someone else. It's intimate, experiential knowledge. To be known by Jesus is to be brought into covenant relationship with him. Think about that. The king inviting you in to be in intimate relationship with him, a relationship where you are fully seen, and fully known, all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yet fully loved at the same time. To be known by Jesus is to know Jesus. It's a relationship. It's a two-way street. That's the good news of the gospel. God is on a mission to redeem all things to himself, to restore all the things that have been broken and marred by sin back to their good original design. And he does that through Jesus. God in the flesh, coming to live in our skin, doing what we couldn't, living a life fully pleasing to the Father, 
dying the death that we deserved in our place to secure victory over sin and then being raised three days later to secure victory over death. That's the only reason fallen humanity has any hope of being known by God. Jesus did the work for us to bring us into covenant relationship with him. This passage, it paints a picture of the day of judgment, the day Jesus will return to bring his kingdom in full. Imagine standing there at the gates of the kingdom. Now, I mean, I don't know this is what it's going to look like, but just use your imagination, okay? You're there. You're about to present your case for entrance into Jesus' kingdom. If your plan that day is to roll out your spiritual resume and lay out all of your great spiritual accomplishments, you're in trouble. I played basketball in junior high and high school. I was never like a, a standout, but I was decent enough that uh, I was on the team, got to play in my small hometown high school. It's hard for me to believe now um, because, you know, when I stand under the basket, the rim is just, it looks so far up there, and I can't even touch it anymore when I jump. So it's hard for me to believe. It's okay if it's hard for you to believe. But I could dunk in high school. At least once. I did it once. In practice, toward the end of my senior season, and it wasn't like really commanding. It wasn't worthy of, you know, being on any highlight reel, but I got the ball in my hand up over the rim and I flushed it home. Pointing to some great spiritual act as a reason for entrance into the kingdom would be like me going up to Mike Krzyzewski, longtime coach of the men's Duke men's basketball team and, and Team USA, going up to him and saying, Coach, coach, like I'm, I'm a real baller. You have to let me on Team USA. I know all the lingo. I know what to say. I even dunked once in high school basketball practice. Wouldn't go very well, would it? Brother and sister, when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, you better lead with what Jesus has done on your behalf to save you and not your own spiritual accomplishments. It better sound like, Lord, Lord, you did it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. You displayed your great love by dying on the cross when I was still in my sin. And so the searching question here is, are you merely performing spiritual acts? Are you merely playing the game or are you giving yourself to knowing the king who has made you his own? Before we move on from these two contrasts, saying versus doing and performing versus knowing, I want to address a tension that exists here. And that is the tension between knowing the grace of Jesus and obeying. Remember, Jesus will be known and obeyed or not known at all. Listen again to D.A. Carson on this point. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance. 
Church membership without rigorous church discipline. Discipleship without obedience. Blessing without persecution. Joy without righteousness. Results without obedience. You might think of this tension between knowing the grace of Jesus and obeying Jesus as ditches on the side of a road. You know, to say that you know Jesus, yet you don't obey him, is to cheapen the grace and the new life that you've claimed to experience. On the other side, to try to strictly uphold the law of God without your heart being transformed and softened by a growing knowledge of God is legalism. There's a dire warning here. Swerving into and staying in either one of those ditches can be deadly. As citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we have to live in the tension of both. Jesus will be known and obeyed, or he won't be known at all. And the good news is that if you truly know, if you are truly known by him, if you truly know him, his covenant love is fierce enough to keep you saved, to keep you there in that relationship with him. I want to close out our time together the, the same way we started, by talking about warning signs. Not highway road signs, but spiritual warning signs. You might ask Jeff, like, are you trying to get me to doubt my salvation with this sermon? Well, no. And maybe a little. Rest assured this morning, Jesus is not turning away those who have or will genuinely turn to him in this life. But there is wisdom in testing our faith. There's wisdom in examining ourselves. Paul says so much in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So what are the signs that point to spiritual danger ahead? How might you know you're in danger of failing the test and hearing Jesus say on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. This isn't an exhaustive list, and if one or more of them are true of you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't really know Jesus, but don't rush past this. This passage was given to you, brother and sister, to warn you of danger ahead and to just breeze past Jesus' warning here Assuming that you're going to be okay, that's reckless. And this passage was also given to those here who might not yet know Jesus to warn you from putting your hope in something false, like just mere words or spectacular performance. So here they are. Warning signs, there, may, there might be danger ahead. One, your public devotion outpaces your private devotion eager to come and be seen on Sunday mornings. Not eager, though, to daily, intentionally carve out time to meet with God. Two, you insulate yourself from being fully known by others. You let people in just far enough, but not all the way because you're afraid of being found out. Three, you elevate the influence and teaching of celebrity Christians over the leaders in your own local church. Or maybe there's really no priority to root yourself in a local church at all. Four, 
you emphasize, you seek the spectacular over the steady, everyday seeking of God through his word and prayer. Five, your heart is more excited to debate the finer points of theology than to find ways to tangibly love your neighbor. Six, you lament not knowing what God wants you to do in some area of life, but you still haven't done the last thing he asked you to do. Seven, you're not able to remember the last time you felt genuine conviction and confessed and repented of sin unless you were directed to on a Sunday morning. Or maybe if you do remember, it's just really far in the rearview mirror. Eight, your motivation for obedience to God is, is mostly just duty. You know that you should, rather than a heart that wants to obey. And nine, you use God in your performance for him to elevate your status or get you to the, to the places of influence that you really crave. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus will be known and obeyed, or he won't be known at all. Test yourselves this morning. Examine yourselves. Don't rush past this. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. That you've given it to us that we could know you for who you truly are. Lord, forgive us for reading your word and, and hearing your word and just moving on without really taking time to consider it. And so I pray by your spirit, even now, God, that you would be at work in us. You would show us, uh, God, show us real warning signs if there's danger ahead for us. Make it clear to us, God, that we truly know you or we don't, and we need to repent of our sins and turn to you. God, we pray you do that work in us. We thank you for just the incredible offer of being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Thank you for doing the work on our behalf, God. You're gracious, you're good. We love you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name.